0: Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and modern horse training, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Kevalia. And today our guest is Dr. Michaela Hempen. Many of you are familiar with Michaela's work through the work that she did with odd cribbing with her mayor Blondie. Those of you who are in my online clinic, you may be familiar with the work, some of Michaela's, the Im- beautiful images of Michaela with her horses or working in the shoulder in and haunches in and just beautiful, beautiful images. And Michaela's been our guest many times before. Today, I asked her to join us to talk about what is the mind. And before Makila, I turn this over to you. The reason that I was particularly interested in having you join us is because this seems like the perfect follow on from the conversation that we just had with Dr. Joe Lang. And Joe gave us a really fascinating conversation about public and private events that for many people I'm sure their heads are still spinning from listening to that. And I would recommend to people that they listen to the, the podcast episodes that we did with Joe as a preparation for this. And and in terms of public and private events, one of the points that Joe makes is that we can't know what anyone else is experiencing, what anyone else is thinking that when you hold up a red sweater, for example, and I see it as a red sweater, but I can't know what you're seeing, whether you're seeing the same red that I'm seeing. And if I can't even know what colors you're seeing, how am I going to know anything else about your experience? And I often think about Kay Lawrence, the canine clicker trainer who has synesthesia, where she, for example, sees the days of the week as colors. What in the world does that mean? Well, she says, oh, well, Wednesday is purple. Like, what? (laughs) What does that mean? And, And one of the reasons that I value Kay and Kay's training is because she sees the world from such a different perspective. And so she's had a lifetime of questioning the things that are, are said, because she sees things in such a different way. And that has value. And then it also is very relevant for those of us who are teaching and we want to be really clear in how we teach. And I think about this in terms of, for example, with the clicker training, and I would say very happily, oh, clicker training, it's great for groundwork. Well, when I started teaching clicker training, I think for most people the vast majority of people if you said groundwork that immediately equated to lunging and only to lunging so the meaning of groundwork was lunging but that's not what i meant by groundwork and so when i'm happily there going oh yes you're going to love clicker training because of all the wonderful ways in which you can do groundwork I have a very different image in my mind that I'm trying to get across from somebody whose only image of groundwork is lunging. And the same thing, Michaela, you and I have had the great privilege of watching uh, Baron, the classical dressage master. And, and so if I say shoulder in to you, you're immediately drawing on your images, your memories of what you've seen and But somebody else who's only seen dressage horses who have tight nosebands tying their mouths closed and their tails are ringing and they're working in tension. And I say, oh, yes, you know, we want to do lateral work. And they're going, why? Why? And so all this idea of public and private events, I think, becomes really relevant when we are trying to communicate to one another. And then Joe also talked about Helen Keller and her experience, where before she connected with her teacher and Sullivan, and Helen Keller, who was both deaf and blind, had no language. And prior to the uh, communication being opened up, she would said she was, it was, she was just a void. She had no awareness, no consciousness. And this becomes really relevant in terms of animal welfare and the training choices that we make. So if you have somebody who's saying that animals have no consciousness, that they are a statement that you might have with Descartes, who 17th century is saying that animals do not feel pain or they're not, they may feel pain, but they're not aware of their pain. It's like, what does that mean? And that that relates very much to the training choices that we make. And so I know that this is an area that you have delved into, both for your personal private interests, and then also for the work that you have been doing, which I'm going to leave it up to you to explain a little bit of what you have been doing, what your current assignment is in in your day job, as it were, And then just let you jump in and help us to weave through this labyrinth of complex ideas. So have at it.
1: (laughs) Yes, indeed, very complex, very convoluted. (laughs) So, yeah, maybe first, because people know me from horse training and, and that work, but you may not know what I'm doing in my day job. So I'm a scientific officer at the European Food Safety Authority, and part of the work I'm doing is on animal welfare. So we are providing reports on request of the European Commission, which are hopefully going to be the basis for a change in legislation, so an update of the European animal welfare legislation. And I have to put a disclaimer here because since I'm talking (laughs) about work, I have to say that Whatever views I'm expressing here are my personal, and they are not yes. uh, necessarily reflect EFSA's views, positions, or policies. So, so we receive, for example, a request on a large number of species because the, the European Commission, as I said, wants to revise this legislation. What we've done since 2020, we received those requests. We've, we've done a large number of species, welfare of pigs, welfare of dairy, cattle, calves, Poultry, and we'll we'll do ducks, geese, quail, laying hens, broilers, and we'll 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 do more. We started uh, turkeys. I'm also now involved in fur animals, and we'll get more. Horses are probably also coming. So it's a really really important work because this really may have an effect on legislation uh, and improve the conditions for farm animals. And not only we even start getting cats and dogs. And as I said, fur animals is really new. Now, what we're asked to do are scientific assessments and scientific assessments and welfare is not an easy task because we cannot just ask the animal how they, you know, how they feel and about a certain environment or, uh, more, more difficult is even to, to set limits, which is what legislators need. So legislators would need rather precise numbers, for example, on a stable, how big does the stable need to be, how many drinkers, how many feeders, how many animals per group and all of that. And that's really difficult to determine. And you have one is the methodology. That is difficult. The other one is where do you set a limit, you know, to, can you say until then it's acceptable and then it's no longer acceptable. So we can't do that because that, that is a moral decision if you want. I mean, it only goes that far. So welfare is always a bit complicated, whereas my other work is on microbiological risk assessments and that's a lot easier because you can say, you know, the bacteria will, will grow under these conditions that much. And at that moment, it's probably a risk for human and the humans may get sick that's much easier but for the welfare of animals morals come in there which we are not assessing but then you have to decide at a certain point so it's it's all a bit vague so the science is not very precise but it's really important because yes. if we if we don't provide an you know an estimate then legislation has nothing to put there so <laughs> try our best yes so the question of you know why do we actually protect animals is is also a complicated one because in a way we want to improve the lives of of those farm animals but then they are still bred to be slaughtered. Yes. So you you can't be too idealistic in a way because you'd say okay in the end they will be slaughtered but at least we should we should try to to improve how they are living and then. Yes. The question is now, of course, why? Yes. Why? Okay. Why is it why is it even relevant? So and there is probably the connection to, to the discussion you said in your introduction and to the discussion with Joe Lang is do they feel pain? Do they feel do they even bother? Or are they just machines as Descartes said? And I think for now. Now let me back up.
0: <laughs> so so why while, while you're thinking about where to go, there was an interesting article in the New York Times this past week on, an archeo- on Pompeii, and they're always doing more of the archaeological discoveries around Pompeii. And what they were reporting on were the prison bakeries. And what this was is a very small enclosed space in which wheat was ground into flour. And the slaves at the time and donkeys were in this space. There was one and only one very small barred window, which was not to the outside, but to another small chamber. And from what they could tell, the donkeys and these people were locked into this chamber and never went out of it and spent their life, you know, the donkeys were driven or beaten. They Apparently they could see, because of the way that things were preserved when the volcano, when Mount Vesuvius expo- uh, exploded, they could see how people in the donkeys were preserved, presumably, though the article didn't go into that. But you think about how we perceive the other, that we can do that to donkeys, and humans. And this is part of this huge question of how do we perceive one another? And when you have Joe Lang talking about Helen Keller, who before she had language, she was just a void. And it was language that gave her consciousness, that gave her enlightenment, as it were. That, that opens up such a difficult way of thinking because you could imagine thinking, well, the more educated I am, the more enlightened I am, the more awareness I have, and, and that makes me more conscious and more worthy of care than somebody who has no awareness and no, you know that is uneducated and we've seen that throughout history and then we see it extended to animals and this becomes a really really difficult politically difficult topic emotionally difficult topic and and a very complex topic and here we are with our horses saying it does matter uh, how i train my horse i don't want them being stressed or frightened. I don't want to inflict pain. And why? What are all the reasons for making those choices? Is it because my animals feel pain? Is that relevant? All of these questions come into play and are very much related to what we're trying to share in sharing clicker training and kinder ways of training. So having rambled a bit, (laughs) <laughs> where, where does that? Oh, do yeah. Your
1: well, it's it's sure. Where, where do you draw a line? It's certainly a discussion that philosophers would suggest different different things, right? So, is it currently? I would say we are at the state where we're saying uh, animals are sentient, and what does it mean to be sentient? But actually, we so we are of course the in herit- inheritance of our past. So, we come from a certain cultural heritage. But if you'd go in other cultures, actually, they have much less difficulty in relating to animals, that animals are thinking, of course, and have the same type of emotions that we have. They do not have those problems that we make ourselves because we come from all that cultural heritage of the philosophers, et cetera, or even at Aristotle's time, I think there was there was not that that divide Uh, as it came later on. So even though animists now would be called anthropomorphists and that, you know, should not be done, but actually they did not have these difficulties. So we learned through, you know, starting from from Descartes with this animal machine and, and also the introduction of the differentiation between animals being a machine and humans being sort of the same body, but we do have the mind which differentiates us and makes us better in a way, apparently, which provides a justification to mistreat animals or whoever we think we need a justification to be mistreating, right. even if that is humans. But I think that that divide was very important also with, with the introduction of, of the mind, and that carries up until today that we have this concept of mind. Now we are only because of Darwin, actually, because da, now Darwin with and and the naturalist before him would make the connections between animals or all living beings and us as a continuity whereas you know thinking that this is actually not different but we are the same just a different the kind in in, in quality the quality is different but we are all basically have the same things just in different qualities so if if i have inherited out of evolution consciousness then, all the other creatures must have it in a certain way as well. So I think that was probably a big shift in thinking that we are not so different. We're just a matter of the quality. Quality is different. And then, following on to that, the the differentiation then came with, you know higher, and that one also is still present today that we think if creatures that are closer to us, like you know primates, And then you go down, downwards, (laughs) right? So to the lower level creatures, so evolutionary biologist, I look it up, Romanes, he he then maintained all these different levels of higher and and lower. So you can provide another justification of saying, well, the lower animals, they do not have the perception or that they don't, not not necessarily, we don't need to respect those ones because they don't have the capacity. So you have another... Argument.
0: Right. And then, and then you discover all the amazing things that an octopus is capable of. And that throws a huge, like, okay, time to do a little yeah. rethinking.
1: But then it's interesting because the it was Lloyd Morgan. He was sort of the first person who then started the experimental analysis of animal behavior. Or animal, then it was sort of animal psychology, if you want, but different from the others who were just observing and making up stories, basically narratives that explain what, what they see. Morgan then started take, making experiments to understand behavior. And he sort of started doubting whether this, you know, mind thing is actually helpful. So basically he said that anything that you can explain by trial and error learning but just observing his dogs who his dog was doing I don't know Learned to open the gate and he observed the approximations how the dog learned to open the gate and instead of referring to insight because he saw the, the progress he said actually this is just trial and error learning that was before Skinner said whenever you have a behavior that you try to explain you you should first try everything else before Explaining it with the mind, though, with mental processes, so I think that was already quite revolutionary, probably at the time. And after, because so yes. much,
0: so much of that animals are behave through instinct, so exactly. they don't need trial and error learning. They just the spider can can spin a web without the trial and error learning because of instinct. The bird builds a nest through instinct, not through trial and error learning. And so humans operate through the mind and through insight and the lower animals, their behavior is instinctive. And that was certainly very much part of the cultural teaching that I know I was exposed to in school, you know, that animals, are, it's just instinct. That's all it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Maybe I shouldn't say that Morgan was before Skinner. But I think there was a, sort of an overlap, but it was sort of a big, big shift from how how to explain behavior at the beginning of of discovering, you know, what what Skinner wrote about later on of um, how we explain behavior without using mental processes. So, and then after that, there was basically, I think, sort of the the, the big divide. So now that we are starting to to do experiments with animals. Instead of just going out, observe and narrate afterwards what we think happened, but actually doing the experiments, then I think it it sort of divided into these two lines. So in in the US you had Skinner and behaviorism growing, you know Thorndike, Skinner, etc. And in Europe we had we had Tinbergen and Lorenz and ethology growing. Yes. And they developed sort of apparently in parallel in two dif- different lines, and this is. Where the chaos starts. <laughs> because because the shift, I mean the the difference is so fundamental, and, and we'll get to that when later on in conversation, I guess, in where I had so much difficulty in, in making sense of what I learned through clicker training, through the exposure to behavior analysts, to Jesus to Joe Lang, and all of these people. And I was like, wait, it doesn't, it doesn't fit anymore. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and then but I discovered something else that was really interesting. So, so now okay, we have ethology, we have behaviorism and now in 1975 and that's really funny because an American zoologist named Donald Griffin presented a paper 1975 on subjective feelings at the International Ethology Conference in Parma, Italy where I'm sitting, (laughs) which was sort of the start of cognitive psychology. And why (laughs) empowerment? Yes. So he basically said that now that we've learned so much, so ethology and behaviorism have contributed so much in, in understanding or actually recognizing what animals are capable of doing. Animals can do such complex tasks that we never thought possible. There must be something bigger going on. So he brought the mind back, basically. So whereas ethology was saying, we're only observing what we see, trying to be really scientific, only what we can measure, and behaviorism is the same thing. Now he brought this mentalist approach back in with what is now cognitive ethology. And people are going to crucify me now probably for saying that, but it's I, I don't think that was a good idea. Because now we're making it's it's really even though I'm not against the sentiment of appreciating animal intelligence and and you know their uh, internal internal lives or, or the, the value of their lives that's not not the point but trying to bring mental processes back which we cannot assess scientifically is only complicating things they are, they are not helping because now we are trying to and and scientific activity is doing exactly that. Exactly. We're trying to prove that animals have self-awareness, but it's nothing you can measure. So you're going in circles. So science is, is trying to prove something that you cannot prove. So we can only do indirect assessments and, and I don't understand I don't understand what's the point. And it's yeah, that's that's really where the difficulty comes in, I think. So that's why I had to understand, trying to understand better what do they mean with mental activities? What is all of that? And before I continue, I'm going to take a break and see what you guys have to say about that.
2: <laughs> well, I'm I'm surprised about two things. I'm surprised when you say that behaviorism wasn't that prevalent in Europe; that rather it was etology. I'm surprised. So it's it it was more of an American
1: thing. Yeah, totally. We still now don't have behaviorists. Hmm. I mean, still now they would have died out anyway with cognitive ethology, but they even no, now they don't have. I mean, even even as a human, actually a friend of mine has a child with, with um autism. I mentioned to him whether you know he, he could find a behavior analyst to to help and he has never heard of that before. Really? Does not exist. I think we have in, in Maybe Germany in the UK a little one, bit
2: maybe in the uk because of the the historical links with the united states but
1: well i'm not saying they are none but but yeah, yeah. it's really you you would have to know you need you need to know about it so that you can search oh. for for behavior analysts or it does not it does not exist I'm we don't so have that, culture.
2: that.
1: it's, it's weird we ha- we have freud and ethology
2: and yes on the other side i didn't know that cognitive ethology was a thing.
1: No, that's very important. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So how do you define that cognitive ethology?
1: Well, ethology is the same ethology, right? But now you are you are adding cognition. So cognition is adding m- mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought experience and the senses. So you are adding mental action, mental activities. Mm. So what do you think that is? I'm not sure. You know, because when
2: we're talking about consciousness, um, for me, it's like being able to think that you're thinking. Being able to like step back and see yourself thinking. For me, that's what consciousness is. Would you agree with that? That
1: would right. be my simple the, definition. Yes. So it's really difficult to define consciousness because there's not one definition. So there's a common definition, something like what you say. So basically I'm feeling something or I'm Sensing something, though, so there's a sensation, and I'm aware of it. Yes, I'm
2: aware that I'm aware. I'm aware that I'm feeling, etc.
1: Right, but there are so you can define it in really complicated ways, and it's it's because there are different levels. So philosophers have argued or are proposing different different views on how to define consciousness. So let me. Like the statement
0: that really threw me when I was first reading about Descartes. And sort of the evolution of how we got where we currently are. They would make the statement that animals can feel pain, but they aren't aware of it. I thought, like, wait, how how can you feel it? If you're feeling it, how can you not be aware of it? What does that what does that mean? And so, I don't know, what does that mean? How can that be right. that you can feel something but not be aware of it?
1: I well, I guess a lot there are a lot of things that you know, you're not aware of that's going on in your body. So I think what something that you'd need to also for philosophy probably that we need to understand is so that, that's the dualism. So you have body and mind. Yes, that is based on on, on Descartes. And then we have basically now shifted uh, in society to monism. So we are no longer differentiating body and mind as separate but that the physical and mental world are made of one unique substance. And there are different ideas about that. But basically, I think that's the most pervasive, at least in my world, is materialism, which basically means that now our conscious experiences basically result from what's going on in our brain. So that they put all this consciousness is in the brain. The mind is in the brain. That's... Now demonism, so materialism. We have one substance, body and mind, all here in the brain, and the brain runs everything. So you get to the gut pile. <laughs> I don't think there's a word for it yet, but <laughs> right. So uh, this is, and this is why now uh, you have all this, you know, neuroscience looking into what chemicals and neurons. <laughs> Exactly, visiting. what's going on in the brain, and where where is the, the location of emotion? And you have mm. all all these arguments, which are revising already. So we have the sensation and and the perception. So sensation, to me, is signals that enter the body in some way. You know, yes. could be tactile or smell or, or whatever humans perceive, and animals may perceive something different, in addition or less. So it may, it's probably not exactly the same thing, but we all have sensations, and then you have perception. So perception is what what we make of it. You now, say let's say the brain makes of it. So yes. information is coming in, and there's something that puts all this information together and makes sense of it, and that's that's the perception. So a feeling is a perception. So I if I I look at a rose. So I get visual input on top of maybe olfactory, on top of all this other information, and my brain makes the concept of rose all all together with it. Yes. So that's a, the perception of the rose. And then there is um, another a new term that I didn't know, qualia, that is used to refer to introspectively accessible aspects of our mental life. So that's basically the... Well, it's sort of the the perception, the, the the feeling, the quality. You know, do I I you know I like roses or I don't like roses or what are, does a rose? Looking at a rose or smelling a rose make me feel? Does it remind me of a, I don't know, beautiful romantic relationship I had in the past or the thorns that hurt me once? Yes, right. So and and this is so this this experience, this perception, this experience, etc. That is what is you know the private event. That is what I, only I can, for me, that's the I, the first first person, only I can perceive that and experience that. And there is no way, I cannot even describe it. Because you can only yes. describe, well, you can describe it, but you cannot accurately describe it because we don't have the language for that. We have language, which is already good. So I can give have, very good
0: metaphors.
1: Yes. That we, we have to. We have agreed terminology that we understand each other. If I uh, say certain things, you can relate, but then you will do your own perception. So you get your input from auditory and your brain will put together different things and your rose will look different and your perception will be different.
0: So when you say that the rose brings sort of romantic associations and memories, what that means to you may be completely different from what it
1: means to anyone else exactly yeah. and there's no way of knowing yes and now if you look at animals you know there was this philosopher nagel or nagel depending on the language who was saying you know with you, you you can never know what it is like to be a bat because bats have a totally different sensory inputs and what they make of the world will be so totally different we cannot even imagine i mean they're like aliens Yes. I mean, the echolocation, how they perceive the world is so vastly different from, from ours. There's no way we could even talk about it. Even if we had the same words, it would be impossible to, ex- to imagine how they experience the world. Yeah. So their consciousness would be totally different from ours.
0: And what the world is like to a dog with their olfactory abilities. And we can't even begin to... Or yeah. an
2: octopus. You were talking about octopuses. They have, I think, neurons in their in their arms. Yeah. So, so part we, of their, part of their brains is that, you know, in their arms. Yeah. yeah.
0: So we very we different. we cannot even an animal that we are so very familiar with, such as a dog. We cannot know what it is to be a dog, given their abilities in terms of how they're able to perceive the world through olfaction. It's just, we can't begin to conceive of what that must be like.
2: And even, you know, I was reading the other day something on social networks. Someone was talking about um, a horse going around their paddock, you know, like trotting and expressing what a lot of people might consider to be joy. But she said, you know, the reality, because this was her horse, so she knew, the reality is that because of the bad footing outside in the past few days, this horse was deprived of going out for a few days. And so what are we seeing? Joy or relief of being kept captive for a couple of days? So even even an animal that is, you know, pretty close to us, and we look at a behavior that we might interpret as Oh, he's, you know, he's happy to be out, but might not be happiness, might be
0: just relief. What is what is joy? You know, what is joy?
1: Right. So. Yeah. Right. So, so that you have one problem is that you need, if, if you want to study consciousness is sort of the like chamas put it, the easy way to is the, the processes in the brain. That's easy because. You know, even though, sure, it's difficult, but it's still sort of easy because there's something probably you can measure. So once you have figured out the equipment, the technology, you you can sort that out, what's happening in the brain. Yes. But what you cannot measure is subjective experience. So that we, we cannot. And even, so this David Chalmers, a philosopher, he to, to express that, he invented the... <laughs> Which I thought was really funny, the philosophical zombies. So uh, say, say zombies, zombies. Philo- okay. uh, philo- zombies. Yes. So imagine you have uh, one human, you know, say me person. Then there's another me, but that me has no subjective experiences. So no qualia, as they say. So no subjective experience. There's only how the body works. You know. So this. Zombie would have the same input, would see the same things, would have the same physiological responses to input, the same everything, but no ex- subjective experience. So now if you would go and measure, so say you as an experimenter, go and take you know my heart rate and ask me questionnaires and measure all types of responses and do all types of tests, the results will be the same because you can't measure subjective feelings. So, how would you know whether the zombie or me have feelings you can't know? <laughs> That's exactly the point because we can't measure it. So,
2: but you say- would the zombie experience like increased heart rate, for instance, in yes. case of a monster?
1: Yes, all of that. But you okay. don't have the feeling.
2: But for me, the heart rate increase comes from the fear. Am I wrong in the analysis of that?
1: Say you are. Say maybe we are. We are both running, or we are. We are both looking at. I don't know. the The idea is that you you can't go and measure, you're always inferring. With the, if you're measuring a heart higher heart rate, you can make up all types of stories why 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 that is. Yeah. The point, just being that you can't measure it, and we are fooling ourselves because what's often ha- happening is that we make up stories to explain what's what's happening, but we don't really know. I mean, the stories may be good and purposeful, but we can't we can't measure it. Which is why you could say that again, other philosophers, and that's closer to what what Joe was talking about. It's because it's only because we have that that language that we can talk about. Things and there are other even cognitive scientists who would say, so Daniel Dennett, for example, he said that consciousness is fiction or user illusion. So it's only because we are talking about it, it's storytelling, which requires language. That's why we 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 make it a thing. Otherwise, consciousness wouldn't even be a thing. It's a thing because we talk about it. Ooh. It wouldn't be a thing, you know, if we don't talk about it. <laughs> right.
0: And so would it even exist if we didn't talk about it? that? Exactly. That gets to, you know, a tree falls in a forest. Does it make a sound? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like
1: Exactly. If there's no receiver, there's no right. sound. If
0: there's no receiver. There's no sound. It's like, oh, dear. Yeah. 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 Um,
1: Which, yeah. I, lo- I love that. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. So what I found helpful were in actually EFSA has Commissioned a report on animal consciousness that is not old. It's from 2017, and it's publicly available, so people can read that. It's it's quite quite good, quite uh, detailed. And then they describe now technical concepts of consciousness developed by a philosopher. They described they decided to describe three. There are more, but those three I find really helpful. So the first one would be access consciousness. That one was introduced by Ned Block in 1995, and it refers to mental representations cognitively available for use in rational control of action or speech. So that means it's consciousness defined by its functional role in cognitive life. And he thinks that many animals possess access consciousness. So language is not a requirement for that one. I think it's more. So an example uh, would be what? it's basically what you do with information you get so it's a reaction i mean still talk, we are still talking about mental representations which okay. is a funny concept but i think to me it means we get sensory input and you know react to the environment we do we do something there's it, it is, there's it is a reaction basically
0: so i'm a, i'm a horse i hear rustling in the bushes and my head comes up as an observer, I can see that, that event occurring, but would it be that the horse is so, and I don't have the well, words that you were just using. So you're, you're going on alert. Yeah, but it's not, it's
1: of. it's not instinctive. You would have the consciousness, you would have the rational. rational control is what, what they use. Okay. So so I, so
0: I would have the rational control that there might be something dangerous <laughs> in the bushes. And think about <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I'm think and and I'm thinking about whether I should run or whether I can go back and graze. Is that would yeah, that so fall into that category?
1: I think I think so. I would say okay. it like that, but yeah,
0: I'm, so I'm it's just very trying, practical, right? I'm just yeah, yeah, I know. To translate this into something that. That is not just a bundle of 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 words that are put together in a new way
1: where I'm going. Wait a minute,
0: I don't yeah. understand.
1: But that. that one is not that one. I think it's not really important. The one okay. that is important for us is the phenomenal consciousness, which is that refers now to the qualitative, subjective, or phenomenological aspect of conscious experience. Sometimes identified with this qualia. So basically, it's what we are talking about. So you have feelings the feelings come in. So you have the perception and there is, I'm I'm, you know, I I look at the rose and I feel I don't know butterflies in my stomach and I'm aware of it. You know, there was this romantic relationship that it reminds me of and it was, you know, I had these feelings then. So I'm aware that it's it's that. So so feelings come in here. So feelings, emotions, all of that. So and subjective experiences would be another term. And in that context, you would put sentience. Okay. So conscious animals are also sentient, but sentient doesn't mean conscious, depending on how you define consciousness. So what's for us is important now, because it's sort of in animal ethics, sentience is, is basically used to argue that we have, you know, morally should treat animals well, because they are able to feel pain or pleasure. And we should respect that or take care of them. So you have sentience, it's in, the, in that concept of phenomenal consciousness. That's the one that's most important for how we treat animals. So suffering and pain. Uh, so there's actually a differentiation. There's an author, De Grazia, defines suffering as a highly unpleasant emotional state associated with more than minimal pain or distress. Whereas pain is an unpleasant, aversive sensory experience typically associated with actual potential tissue damage. I don't know whether it's important, but there's a difference between suffering and pain. So pain is with tissue damage. Welfare, going back to animal welfare assessments, you'd need to find an argument that an animal, say a certain species, say we were talking about the octopus, can feel pain or is suffering or can experience enjoyment, capacity to suffer and or experience of enjoyment. Then they would be sentient and then we have a moral obligation of which actually then often changes legislation. So for the animals, it's sort of uh dead or alive thing. If they get the status of being sentient or not. Well, actually in practice it doesn't really change much for them. <laughs> but it should, in theory. It it if it was put in practice, then that that would be basically for them, you know, the upgrading. <laughs> yeah. you want. So that's what science needs to prove, that they are sentient or that they feel enjoyment or, or pain or pleasure.
0: I'm going to stop us here for now. There's a lot in this episode that may be very unfamiliar to many of you. So I'm going to give you time to digest this unit along with all of your other holiday treats. In the next episode, Michaela will take us deeper into the great divide between cognitive ethology and behavioral analysis and she presents some of the challenges involved in assessing animal welfare. For now, I will simply wish you a very, very happy holiday season and all the best in the coming year. Train well and have fun with your horses.